All right, hey, I want to welcome you guys. It's great to have the entire football team here with us. We hope you'll come back. I want you to know we love you guys, but I especially love your head coach, Mike Swider. Mike, where are you? Stand up. Come on, buddy. You're the best, man. When we got together a couple months ago, I want you to know I've been quoting you ever since. Thank you, you guys. And again, please, I, I mean it, come back and join us. Next Sunday, there's going to be all sorts of changes here at Wheaton Bible Church, and it's going to be wild. Now, this morning, I want to be bold. I want to talk to you. I want to, uh, let me say it this way. I want to offer you a key to making your life great according to Christianity. A key that most of us, even as Christians, hardly think about. This key is rooted in one of the most central promises and yet most underappreciated ones that we have in the Bible. And it's a promise of heaven for all who believe in Jesus. So to get there this morning, I want to go to the very end of the Bible and look at Revelation chapter 21 and 22, some pieces of Revelation 21 and 22. And along the way, I want to ask and address two questions. Question number one, what is this promise? What is heaven according to these two chapters? And then the second one, well, how in the world can this make our life great right now? I mean today. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read some different sections as we go rather than reading the entire passage. And let's begin in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Often in the Old Testament, a symbol of darkness and danger. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, a gift of grace, prepared beautifully as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now skip down to verse 11. It, that is the new Jerusalem, shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the verses that follow, we have this incredible description of the beauty and the enormous dimensions of the walls of the city. We are told in verse 18 that the entire city is pure gold. So the first thing I want to observe when we talk about this promise, we talk about heaven, and we don't necessarily anticipate this or see this coming, is that heaven is a material, it's a physical place. The new Jerusalem has real walls symbolizing divine protection, gates that you can go back and forth through, streets of gold symbolizing divine grace. And according to chapter 21, heaven is a city. It's a new Jerusalem. 
But in chapter 22, we learn something else. So turn to verse 1 of chapter 22. We see here that heaven is not just a city, but it's also a garden. It's a park, it's a green space, a, a garden within the city, if you will. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Now, why the river? Why the tree? To remind us to take us back to the Garden of Eden. To let us know that the new Jerusalem is the Garden of Eden restored, uh, perfected. So the new Jerusalem, according to these two, two chapters, will be a balance. Now, follow this of the energy and the excitement and the opportunity of the best city. And the space and the peace and the serenity of nature. The new Jerusalem, if you know Jesus Christ, will be your home. But the universe will be your playground. Your laboratory. Your school. We have been told, begin with the end in mind. So if you're a parent, what that means, and your children are young, you spend some time thinking about, okay, when they move into adulthood, what values, what characteristics do we want to shape their life? And you parent to that end. If you know Jesus Christ, Revelation is telling us your end will be to have a resurrected body on the resurrected earth, in the resurrected Jerusalem, experiencing resurrected relationships, resurrected beauty, resurrected perfection, all in the presence of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That is your end. So if you want to live a great life now, as God counts great, Begin each and every day. Spend time each and every day thinking about that end, thinking about where you're going, thinking about your real home. The second thing I want you to see is that heaven, and this is much more important, heaven is a dwelling place of God. This is what makes heaven heaven. We see this in verse 3 of chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look. God's dwelling place is now among the people. It's the first mention of God's dwelling place in this verse. And he will dwell with them. The second, they will be his people and God himself will be with them. Three times in this verse, we are told God will dwell with us. He will dwell in heaven and we, he will be our God. Now, the Bible on the one hand tells us that God is everywhere, right? And he's everywhere at the same time. Uh, the Old Testament tells us that God fills the heavens and the earth. But the Bible also tells us that God is especially present in some places. So he dwelt with Israel above all the other nations. And he dwelt in Jerusalem above all the other cities in Israel. And he dwelt in the temple above all other buildings in Jerusalem. And he dwelt in the holy of holies 
above all other places in the temple. And he dwelt on the mercy seat above all other places in the holy of holy. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Where God will reign and rule. It's a dwelling place of God. more than any other place in the universe. And everything, everything in the Old Testament points to this. That's how important this is. That God is everywhere, but God is specially present, and he will be especially present. He will be there in heaven, and we will be with him. And he has chosen you to enjoy him. If you go to chapter 22 and verse 4, it just gets better because we are told not only is God dwelling with us, but we will see him face to face. We will see the beauty and the splendor and the glory of his face. Let me encourage you to take a couple minutes this week and think about what it might mean. Imagine what it might mean to see God face to face and let that soak do a slow drip into your soul. Third thing I want you to note, is that heaven is a world of love. This is actually a title of a famous sermon by the brilliant American theologian Jonathan Edwards that he gave not quite 40 years before the Revolutionary War. Heaven is a world of love. Look at verse 4, chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Another way to say this is that heaven will be a world of unending, infinite, perfect love. Author Gary Chapman wrote a famous book entitled Five Love Languages. We have loved that book. We've been in groups and we've studied this book and it's just a whole lot of fun because Chapman argues we all give and receive love in different ways. Some, for some people like me, it's words of affirmation. For other people, it's quality time. That's how they give and receive love. For other people, it's acts of service. Now Rhonda is right here and she is an acts of service, so I'm going to say this nicely. Rhonda doesn't really care what I say about her. She just wants me to get off the couch and do things for her. I mean, romantic things like taking out the garbage and doing the dishes. And when I take out the garbage and come in, what am I expecting? I'm expecting Rhonda to say, nobody in the universe has ever taken out the garbage like that. <laughs> I'm struggling to how to say this. The fundamental need, desire of humanity, every single one of us, is to be loved, to give love. I would argue it's a central attribute of God. And yet we're wired differently. And, and, and the point I, I want to make here is all of us, all of us are wired with a longing to receive love, a longing to respect, 
express love. So when we come to verse 4 and we read, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, uh, no more pain. What we are being told, what you are being told about heaven is that the respect and the acceptance you long for, the uh, uh, being understood, being cared for, protected, being loved, your desire for perfect relationship, perfect friends, perfect community will all be fulfilled in heaven. There's no more mourning, no more brokenness, no more dysfunction, no more addiction. In heaven, you will get your love back. So look at how Edwards in this sermon expresses this. God is a fountain of love. Now notice the metaphor as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love as the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens fills the world with light. There in heaven dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, united as one in infinitely dear, mutual, and eternal love. There this glorious fountain forever flows in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed, the believers in Christ, bathe with the sweetest enjoyment, and their hearts, as it were, will be deluged with love. Now think of Niagara Falls times a million. And every drop of water is love. In heaven there will be no more pride, no more envy, no more anger, no more racism, no more hate. Heaven is a world of love. Now let me continue. And this may surprise you. Heaven, we are told here, is where human culture is made perfect. So let's jump down to verse 23 in chapter 21 and follow this. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their, what? Their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. Now, the splendor of the kings does not refer to how they're dressed. It refers to the cultural products of their country. This is 26, verse 26 rather. The glory and honor of the nations are their cultural products. So heaven is a place where culture, commerce, trade, invention, creation, craftsmanship, the arts, the sciences, education flourishes. I find that incredible. The glory and honor of the nations are brought in. 
Look at how the author Andy Crouch expresses this. What cultural goods represent the glory and honor of the many cultural traditions we know? We already have biblical assurance that the ships of Tarshish will be there. Perhaps they will share a harbor with an America's Cup yacht and a lovingly carved birch bark canoe. My own personal list of the glory and honor of the nations would be surely, surely include Box B minor mass, don't know what that is, Miles Davis kind of blue, green tea, fish tacos, now we're talking Moby Dick, the iPod, and the Mini Cooper. Of course, I don't expect any of them to appear without being suitably purified and redeemed, but I will be very surprised if they are not carried in by one or another of the representatives of human culture. We're talking about you and me. For they are part of the glorious best that human beings have made of the 12-tone scale, the flavors of the natural world, language, the microchip, and the internal combustion engine. I want you to think about this. Right now, you could be creating. You could be participating in. You, you could be cultivating products that will furnish the new Jerusalem. It is simply not true that the only things that last forever are the Word of God and the people of God. It is simply not true that heaven will be one long church service. Isaiah tells us the ships of Tarshish will be there, the camels of Midian, maybe your pets if they're well behaved. The products, uh, the activities uh, uh, of your life, the things that you give yourself to. So I want you to hear me. Uh, the activities that you invest in, the, the, the passions that you pursue, uh, the work that you give yourself to, all matter to God, and God matters to all of that. And heaven will be full of the best of the products of human culture. Isn't that cool? Finally, heaven will be a place of healing. Turn to chapter 22 in the last sentence in verse 2. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Heaven is, an alter is not an alternative to this life. It is the healing of this life. It's this life made perfect. Uh, heaven is the oxygen of the glory of God that heals everything it touches. But we need to ask ourselves the question, why a tree? Why leaves? And the answer is because we go back to the Garden of Eden. Because everything fell apart when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree. So here we see it's the leaves of the tree in the New Jerusalem that overturn and restore the curse. And Eden, Eden, where it all went down, all went bad, is made perfect. 
Now let me go on. Now I want to come to this second question, this critical question. Because God has not given us the Bible to satisfy your curiosity. God has given you the Bible to change your life. And so the question we've got to wrestle with is, how can heaven, how can these promises make our lives great now in this life? And so I want to give you three things you must do if you are willing to travel down this road. And the first is this. Use heaven to overcome your sufferings, your disappointment, your loss. And by using the word use, I mean press the reality of heaven, not just into your mind, but into your heart. You know, the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation didn't live an isolated life, completely cut off from the world, and didn't sit down at a desk one day and, and decide, you know, I'm going to write this really complex document about the end of the world. No, we're told in the first chapters of the book of Revelation that John was writing to seven specific first century churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. Churches that were suffering, like believers in China are suffering today. Churches that were being persecuted as a persecution was starting to ramp up against Christians in the Roman Empire. And they were being compromised. These Christians were compromising because of the pressure of the world, how the world was so dismissive about Christianity, not unlike what's going on today. So John says... You have become lukewarm. And God speaking says, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. John is writing because he knows all this, because he wants to help these believers that are suffering, being persecuted and compromising. And what does he do in these last two chapters? He says, imagine heaven. Cling to it. Press it into your heart and your mind. Live in light of it. Now, let me illustrate the potency of this. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller tells a story based on another book of the early Roman Empire and the two great plagues of the second and third century. One, I, I think it was 165 A.D. and 251 A.D. These uh, horrific, tragic plagues swept through the empire, and uh, scholars today estimate, based on history, that as many as 30% of the people in the entire empire died. In Rome, thousands of people were dying a week at the peak of the plague. And the rich, knowing, everybody knew that the plagues were spread by contact, but the rich, knowing that, fled the cities. But the Christians, whether rich or poor, stayed. They stayed put to take care of those that were sick at enormous cost, often costing them their lives. 
but they stayed and they served. And Keller asked the question, why? What was the difference between the non-Christian and the Christian in, the, in that time of emergency, that time of, of tragedy? And Keller says the non-Christian had no assurance of the afterlife. But the Christian, conversely, knows that this life is only temporary, only a prelude to the life to come. And it wasn't because the Christians were more brave. It was because they had the bigger picture. They saw life at 50,000 feet. And they had this abiding deep conviction that because the, of the gospel of Christ crucified and raised from the dead, that all who believe would be raised from the dead and spend eternity with God in heaven. They knew this world wasn't their home. And they didn't try to make it their home. They knew they were just passing through. So Christians stayed put in that crisis because of the hope of future glory. And they were, and they were willing to make incredible sacrifices. But that's not even the best part of the story. Because of their commitment, the gospel, the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the empire. And just a few years later, as many as 50% of the people in the entire Roman Empire had become Christians. Because the Christians didn't flee, they stayed put. And they sacrificed. And the reason they sacrificed, a significant part of the reason they sacrificed was rooted in their conviction about heaven. Do you think about heaven? Doesn't matter to you. I'm talking to you Christians. Look at Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul was willing to face what he faced. Paul was willing to do what he hated. Paul was willing to experience complication after complication Paul was willing to have his life be out of control because he would think about his suffering and then he would compare it. He would think about it. He would meditate on it. Heaven. Well, this is my future. This is the now. I can do the now because of my future. The word compare is critical there. And so I wonder... Are you facing a difficulty right now where you need to stay put? Or is there a complex situation uh, around you that you need to step into, that the Spirit is saying step into this, that's going to complicate your life and you've been avoiding? My point is, you will live a great life to the extent you cling to heaven because it will enable you to overcome pain. 
The second thing you must do, you must, and and I beg you, I, I plead with you because I love you, and I want you to experience the best of this life. You must actively think about heaven. I mean, imagine it. Use these verses, these, these concepts. Uh, set aside a, a, a little time every day, maybe when you first get up, and just begin with, okay, God, humble me. I'm an empty vessel. And God, uh, wait a minute. Look what you've done for me. This is John's whole point. John is inviting us to think about the pure gold city of Jerusalem, to think about the leaves of healing, to think about perfect love, to think about seeing Jesus face to face. Heaven is your, uh, the new Jerusalem is your home. The universe is your playground. Think about that. Think about all. Because in doing so, you know what happens? It clarifies your priorities. It helps you understand what is important and not to get so bent out of shape about what is unimportant. So, for example, if you look to your job or your education or your friends or your marriage or your kids to give you life, and you're even unconsciously thinking this way, you're, you're expecting them to give you life, then you know what you're going to do? You're going to put a weight and a pressure on that that will crack. Because nothing in this life is meant to bear that weight. Just this last week, I was getting a little frustrated with a couple of my adult kids thinking about the fact, well, you know, they don't check in with me as much as I would like them to. You teach them to be independent, but when they're independent, independent you get mad and so I was thinking about one of my adult children and thinking you know and I'm being really honest here I was thinking you know I need to let them have it and I say that in love and this was uh, sort of playing out in my head for uh, you know a very brief uh, moment but then all of a sudden because I'm preparing for this message I went to heaven And I realized I was putting too much pressure and too much weight on a relationship that will never ultimately satisfy and I will only experience that in heaven. And the reason you and I get so critical, we get so angry, we get so impatient, we get so short, is because we put too much weight on the things of this life, we've lost sight of heaven. I mean, the people around you, the situations around you are always going to have issues. There's going to be something wrong, even in the people you love the most. And if you overweight it, it's going to make you ugly and it will crack. But if you think about heaven, like I experienced in that moment, it changes everything. And I want to invite you to meditate on, to press heaven into your life. So let me ask you, I already asked you once, do you think about heaven? Or when was the last time you thought about heaven? Does it matter to you? Do you set your mind on the things above, as Paul says in Colossians, 
Actually, it's a command. Set your mind on the things above. Let's go back to Edwards. I want you to see these amazing words. Now, arguably, or, or some will say he's the most brilliant theologian that America's ever produced. And what does he tell us? Well, he says, my mind is taken up with the contemplations of heaven. In other words, here's this guy, and he thought about heaven all the time. He was intentional about it. And I, I thought about the enjoyments of those who were there. He thought about loved ones, people who had gone before him that were in heaven and what their experience was like. And living there in perfect holiness, he thought about the holiness, the humility, and the love of heaven. And it appeared to me exceedingly delightful as a world of love. It was attractive. It appeared to me that all happiness consisted in living in pure, humble, heavenly, divine love. Now notice how he links happiness to heaven. In heaven... Our happiness will be perfected. You know, heaven is the perfect vacation you've always longed for. Heaven is the best day of your life repeated throughout infinity. Heaven is the, the mountains, the lake, the beach on, on steroids. Heaven is that perfect moment in a, in a relationship. And so I wonder, uh, just as a groom is consumed with his bride, uh, the thought of wedding, the thought of the honeymoon, the thought of uh, life together, and just as a child presses his face against the window to see outside, do you have that passion for heaven? And honestly, I don't think we do. I don't. And I am praying that that will change today for you. That you will become that child that presses your face into the window. And finally, and I'll conclude with this. Center on the gospel. Because the gospel is the center of heaven. Do you know six times in these two chapters, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb? So, for example, in chapter 22, in verse 1, we are told the water of the river of life flows from the th throne of God and the Lamb. It doesn't say the, we would expect the throne of God and the Son of God, but it says the Lamb. And we read the exact same thing two verses later in 22, verse Three, six times, over and over, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Why? Because in heaven, the thing that enables us to enjoy heaven is the gospel. That Jesus Christ went to the cross so that you and I could in one day enjoy everything in the universe. And on the cross, he became the Lamb of God, dying in our place for our sins as a substitute, so that the moment we believe, we might find forgiveness, we might find eternal life, e eternal hope, that we might receive the, uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ and be adopted into God's forever family. Jesus is the Lamb. 
The center of the center of the gospel is the Lamb of God crucified for sins. And I want you to think about that. Let me say it this way. In heaven, Jesus is the Son of God, but he's portrayed as the Lamb of God, telling us that the gospel must not only be centered to our lives, but it must be centered to our lives because it's centered to the universe. It's centered to heaven. And so I wonder, is Jesus in this death central to your life? You know, our first value here as a church is that the gospel isn't the starting line, it's the whole race. Is it the whole race for you? And if you're here today and you don't know the Lamb, I want to invite you to receive Christ. You may have never understood that Jesus loves you so much that he died for you, that he became the Lamb of God. And if you've never done so in this moment, come to Jesus, receive him as your Savior. Why? Because what the world needs today is Christians who are willing to stay put and not flee. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you, and, and starting with me, I want to beg for mercy. I want to be real. I want to um, confess that I'm preaching something that has been so hard for me to live, and I think that's true for all of us. Would you give us a, a vision of heaven? Would you rekindle? Would you renew? Would you revive? Because what our culture needs our men and women, students that will stand strong, that won't capitulate to criticism or indifference or anger. Oh God, fill us with the glory. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together. And this morning.